Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Latson. Hi, Sharice. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. So I need to ask before we get into things. You and Patrick were talking on last week's episode about who was the worst golfer. How did that go? How was the, how was the tournament? Well, it was, it was actually really good. So we went down um, uh, to Halifax midweek to take part in the Chamber of Commerce uh, golf tournament. And I was, I was really nervous about it, I got to tell you, because I golfed maybe eight times in my life. And I actually couldn't remember the last time. I think it was around eight years ago. Right. And, uh, and so uh, you know, to, to at least be a little bit ready, um, I took my kids and a friend and we went out to the driving range here in St. John and spent, uh, you know, an hour or so hitting balls. And I kept, I just kept slicing them into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> And I couldn't straighten this out. And I thought, how am I going to survive on this golf course in Halifax and uh, not look like a total idiot? Um, but actually, Sharice, we ended up, you know, have, having a great time. I mean, I I have a lot of, like, I love Moncton and, and Fredericton and St. John, but I got a, a real special affection for Halifax. Right. You went to school there. I right? went to university. I went to Dalhousie. And, uh, and I also, for an undergraduate degree, and I also lived there for a while and had my first journalism job at the Daily News, okay. which is now out of business, but it was my first uh, foray into journalism. And so I just have a real special affection for the city. So I, I was excited about the opportunity to go down to um, play the golf tournament, uh, but also to see Trevor and Derek, our, our huddle folk down there. That yes. was, was really nice. And uh, spend some time with friends in Halifax, make some connections there, get to know some people. But looming all over, over all of this, Sharice, is having to play golf. <laughs> right it's like the sense of dread for the actual reason why you went there yes and I, I didn't totally believe uh patrick patrick sullivan he's the, the chamber ceo we talked to last week that you know he wasn't a very good golfer because also our our um our uh, fearless general manager shelly snodgrass also said she wasn't a very good golfer right she was pretty good sharice i believe it yeah i mean shelly's just kind of good at everything right she Agreed. strikes you as a natural athlete and uh, so she led us through the course, and we, we actually had a lot, a lot of fun there. I actually didn't find out Patrick's uh, final score. I did get to chat with him. Uh-huh. Um, but to tell you the truth, I wasn't keeping score because it was too ugly. Right. I feel like those things, like, that's how I would approach it. Just go and have fun, make connections. And I'm sure, it was, like you, you were telling us, it was kind of like a team bonding yeah. exercise. Because, like, we don't really have, we haven't had a chance really to see Derek and Trevor, our Halifax team, in yeah. in a while so <laughs> no so it's really nice and and also we got to you know even though there were covid restrictions um obviously and and people were you know physically uh, physically distancing uh it was still also an opportunity to just kind of chit chat with people in in the halifax dartmouth area on the course and there was you know different companies sponsored different holes so you'd always have a good chat um, Derek and I always had to be uh, dragged dragged away because we always we wanted to talk. Right, right. <laughs> and we were holding up uh, we were holding up the teams that were trying to move through the course. Right. <laughs> so Shelley and Trevor had to kind of drag us along, even though we'd rather just sit there and chit chat. And you know they had like little food stations along the way and Gotta a place to have a beer, a glass of wine. And uh, so our our temptation to, was to treat it as more of a social event, unless it's a sporting event. But it, but it, but it was awesome. And I mean you've been down to Halifax yourself for vacation and. It's just nice. And I mean, Patrick and I had that conversation last week about, um, you know, bringing Halifax back uh, and like all of our downtowns. And it is challenging, challenging during COVID. And, you know, it's getting it's getting harder now that we're starting to see some second wave stuff here in New Brunswick, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was quiet there, but it was really nice to get out and, you know, have a drink downtown and wander around. And I think we can all just kind of hope that We'll kind of fight our way through this and and be able to bring some life back in into our cities. But I, I think we're getting there, even if we're going to see setbacks. Yeah, like we're having this week in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So overall, Sharice, uh, I felt bad that you weren't there because you would have had fun. I like I even when we were on the course, we were, I was thinking, you know, I think even Sharice would enjoy the golf. <laughs> yeah. I would. I have. I have been to like the the driving range here in St. John where you went to practice, and it's really fun. Like you just you can they have a little bar there. You can have a couple drinks and just uh you know try to swing at a couple balls and <laughs> it's good i'm sure it would have had a great time i mean all you need is a gift for gab and a good sense of humor exactly that's all you need i have both yeah sure <laughs> so who's our who's our guest this week well our guest this week is uh is colleen d'entremont she's the president of the uh, atlantica center for energy 
And um, I, that's based here in St. John, but it's got a, 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 an Atlanta Canada wide focus. And uh, I pulled uh, Colleen in for, for our conversation um, because I've just been, just over the last you know couple months, but really this has been an ongoing conversation for a long time now, we're seeing the, the energy landscape change, right? We're, we're seeing the emerge, emergence of renewables in the region, a lot of talk around developing small modular reactors, and still talk about tidal energy. Uh, and yet, still the conversation around our fossil fuel assets and our fossil fuel economy is strong, right? We're not that far removed from the debate around, uh, around Energy East and, and pipelines and, and debates around natural gas development in the region. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, the Energy East conversation is parked right now and, and Colleen and I didn't even really get much into to the Energy East thing. I feel like people have come to terms with the fact that Energy East is dead and it's time to move on. I think so. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's part of the reason why Colleen and I didn't even dig into that. Quite yeah. honestly, we stayed away from it. So for anybody who's worried this might be a conversation about Energy East, we can put that to rest yes, right now. Yes, calm down. <laughs> um, Keep listening. Exactly. <laughs> Keep listening. Um, but yet, but yet um, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because it is, it's, it's, we're so consumed by these debates here mm-hmm. and, and we're consumed by big projects and what's the next big project in Atlanta, Canada that's going to create jobs and wealth. And it, so it was in that spirit of that, of, of that kind of conversation that I really wanted to, but I wanted to pull in somebody who had kind of like that, that, um, really uh, broad view on things. Right. You know, because I could bring in somebody to talk about wind, wind farms and I can bring in somebody to talk about solar and tidal and nuclear. But for this kind, I think we will, Cherise, especially after this conversation I had with Colleen, explore this further future podcasts. Great. But for this one, I really wanted that broad-based chat and get a sense of the entire landscape. And Colleen is so knowledgeable and has been doing this for so long that I knew she was the perfect person to bring into this chat. And... Uh, and, and of course, you know me, Sharice, I, I can't help a little bit of like small talk at first. Is it, did you ask about the weather? I didn't ask about the weather. Wow. Yeah. That's I, a big step for you. It's a big step for me. I'm, I'm moving into other areas of small talk. Great. And so Colleen and I ended up, you'll hear more in a, in a minute, Sharice, we ended up having a great chat about travel and, and hiking. Um, so... Uh, We'll dive into that conversation, but I didn't, you know, honestly, Sharice, I don't know how you feel. I know we're supposed to be talking about, like, you know, hard issues in these podcasts. Right. But, I, you know me, I really enjoy the small talk. Well, it's our, it's our show. We can do whatever we want. Exactly. Right? You're the and host. You could do you can do whatever you want. So. That's right. And yeah. I love little surprises. And yeah. And so I, this started off really innocently with me asking Colleen about why she loved the fall so much, and it led to this wonderful conversation about... About, uh, about hiking in the region and around the world. And uh, so, well, why don't we get to that? Sounds great. All right. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Mark. Good to talk to Hi. you. Great to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm excellent. It's a very fine day today and looking forward to the fall. Yeah. So where, where, do, I, where do I find you right now? I am at the Atlantica Center for Energy office in Uptown St. John, New Brunswick. And so you tell me you're looking forward to the fall. What are you looking forward to uh, about it? Or do you get out and uh, do some hikes and walks and that kind of thing? I do. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are fabulous for biking and hiking. And uh, during this period of COVID, um, throughout the summer months, um, my husband and I did a lot of hiking and biking in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick and uh, very, very happy to do that and enjoy the outdoors and uh Hopefully, until the snow flies, we'll we'll keep that up. Yeah, you know it's funny. I've been I, I'm not sure uh, if it's like a recent phenomenon, but I've just really noticed that um, people are getting really into hiking the trail systems in both Nova Scotia and uh, and New Brunswick. Like I know in St. John, we're you know we're surrounded by lots of gems like Rockwood Park and the Irving Nature Park and and you know trail systems like that you know, for both biking and hiking. And I know we do quite a bit of it as a family. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure if it's a COVID thing, uh, Colleen, but people are really getting out and, and using these trails. 
I have been thrilled to see um, so much activity on the uh, on the mountains and the trails here in New Brunswick, in particular. Uh, I know Mount Carlton is probably its busiest year ever, which is which is fabulous. I've been there four times, and and I was always surprised that I could hike for three or four hours and not see another person. And so it, it actually is great to see more people using it. Um, I have actually hiked all around the world. I've, I've hiked up to Mount Everest Base Camp. I've hiked to uh, the crest of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest mountain in the contiguous United States. I've, I've uh, hiked in um, you know, South America and other parts of Europe and the, uh, the Dolomites in, in Italy. And um, certainly uh, the natural environment in New Brunswick uh, does not play second fiddle to the rest of the world. So it's great to see New Brunswickers and, and others in this Atlantic bubble uh, enjoy the, uh, the great natural uh, environment that we have here. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting you say, given the amount of experience you have hiking around the world, that that hiking in this region still stands the test, right? It's still a beautiful place to to go for walks and hikes. Yes, when you see these, you know, tourism brochures saying that it's world class, it is true. I can attest to that. It is true that um, you know the Fundy Trail Parkway. And, uh, you know, here in southern New Brunswick, as well as Mount Carlton up in, uh, um, you know, Carlton County, um, we, we just have lovely, lovely trail systems that Europeans in particular uh, would really, really find uh, exciting. Uh, when I was on a trail in, in Italy, there were about 10,000 people and it was, it was really like a, a pilgrimage. So there are thousands and thousands of people that do this every day. And, and here in New Brunswick, um, the, one of the attractions is the fact that you can actually go and find some peace and quiet on the trails. Um, cause it, it is, uh, it's sort of you and nature. Well, I know. And even some of the ones locally, you know, that I think of, cause I remember, um, there was some, I saw some criticism on, on, uh, I think is on Facebook, uh, months ago, uh, because people were seeing, you know, a lot of cars lined up heading into, um, the Irving Nature Park, and and for you know for listeners who are from other communities, it's a it's a uh, a park that's kind of uh, not in the in the city center of St. John, but only you know five ten minutes drive away from the uptown, and and there was lots of cars lined up, and so people were thinking, oh, they must be crowding the trails inside that park. And uh, is somebody who you know, I mean, that's a gentle hike, uh, Colleen, I'm sure, compared to a lot of things that um, that you've done, but. Uh, when you get inside the park, um, it, it's surprising. You just don't run into anyone. So even when there's a full parking lot full of cars, you know, lined up halfway down the road, uh, the park itself is so big that once you're inside it, you don't really bump into anyone. And uh, so it, it goes to your point. It's like we have these like these gems that that are, are um, you know, people are enjoying, but you can still get the kind of distance that you feel you need during this time. Mm-hmm. In particular, where uh, so many of them, um, including Split Rock Trail that uh, that MB Power actually maintains, and near Colson Cove, and uh, Black Rock Black Rock Beach Trail, and Five Fathom Hole that the Nature Conservatory um, uh, manage. Uh, typically, now they're they're one way trails, and so it is it is certainly possible to socially distance uh, while doing these uh, while doing these trails. Yeah, no, for sure. And I know those, those two trails in particular you're mentioning, I went on the first two, first for the first time this year. And if for anybody who hasn't done those trails before, your first thought is, this is one of the most beautiful places I've been to in the world. And it's like 10 minute drive from where I live. And this is the first time I'm going there. <laughs> and, and it, and it, it's amazing. You still have these undiscovered things. And, um, and that's a really good segue, Mark, actually, because... Um, New Brunswickers, I don't know why we just take for granted um, how wonderful this this province is, um, because that also segues into the energy sector. Um, New Brunswick has some amazing energy resources and energy infrastructure that we take for granted, um, just part of our day to day lives. And uh, some other areas of the country would um, would just be so thrilled to have access to tidewater, as an example or uh, the diversity of uh, energy assets that we have here and underutilized pipelines that we have here. So, so it's, a, it's sort of a nice segue that we have a lot of things that, that, that fly under the radar. Yeah. Uh, Colleen, like uh, Sharice, uh, w- one of the producers on the show, 
we'll, we'll be very happy to hear you trying to like, you know, steer me into the conversation that we're here to talk <laughs> about today. Cause she's like, she knows I'm like, I'm the, I'm the king of tangents. And, uh, I, I, there's never a tangent that I won't try and follow Colleen. So she'll be, when she listens to this, she's going to be thrilled. Oh, great. Colleen got Mark back on track. <laughs> Happy to do so. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to bring you back for now when we do a podcast on, on, on the, on the beautiful trail systems and, uh, outdoor amenities in, uh, in the Maritimes. I'm going to have to remember that we're going to have to bring you back on that. Sure. Sure. There's, there's <laughs> more too. I've done, um, yeah, many, even in down in, um, South Africa and, uh, uh, Table Mountain and a, a few like that. They're all over the world. Uh, beautiful, beautiful trails. Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave the, I'll leave the, the tangent, get to our conversation with one more thought. Cause I wanted to share it with you. And I was thinking when I was in, it's one of the great disappointments of my traveling life. Cause I've also done a fair amount of traveling and done, done, you know, hiking in, 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 you know, places in, in, uh, you know, Central America and, uh, and also in Asia. And, and I was, my, my great shame is that I was supposed to do, um, an Everest climb and when I was in my early 20s and a week before we were supposed to go, actually it was a few days before we were supposed to leave, I lost my passport. And <laughs> I had to journey back into India uh, from Nepal. And, uh, and by the time, because of Indian bureaucracy and, uh, and Canadian bureaucracy, I, uh, by the time I got back into Nepal, uh, closing was done for the season. Yes, I did. I did actually go to Nepal and um, and and hiked up to uh, Mount Everest Base Camp, and um, it, it is absolutely a life changing experience. It is phenomenal. And prior to that, I had been in the Canadian Rockies, thinking, "Wow, those are such big mountains." And then when you get to the Himalayas, you go, "Wow, <laughs> those are those are mountains. Those are massive." So. Um, and the villages and the people in Nepal that you walk uh, that you walk through and that you meet and and open their homes to you, um, it is it is very humbling. Yeah, no, and absolutely, and and I'm actually just uh, you know it's an incentive for me to keep myself in shape just so that <laughs> one day soon when I do get the opportunity to do that, I will um, I'll do that. I uh, again one more tangent, but I think it's a story you really enjoy. I went um, I went hiking in uh, Panama. Uh, years ago with a friend and I had injured myself running training for a marathon and uh, it was actually training for the Boston Marathon and, and I hurt myself and I was meeting my friend and in, in uh, going to Panama with him and we he was coming from Toronto and I was coming from here and we met up in Atlanta uh, for a connecting flight and he saw me uh, walk down uh, the runway toward him uh, on crutches. <laughs> And he had said to me, he said, if you're going to run this marathon, just know I'm not going easy on you in Panama. <laughs> and he, he made me a, the ridiculous spectacle of watching me uh, go do these like challenging hikes in Panama uh, on crutches. The other tourists were so amused um, because, like I said, my friend was not going to go easy on me, uh, crutches or not. I was, uh, I was doing the hiking in the cloud forest in, in Panama. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so lots of good stories there. Again, we could fill an entire podcast. We could. <laughs> <laughs> so get on with it, Mark, then says Colleen. Uh, so, well, the reason I wanted to talk to you, Colleen, is um, I've been looking to have that kind of conversation with with someone who could kind of talk through the energy landscape, uh, you know, in the Maritimes and in particular in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And although, of course, uh, Newfoundland and, and PEI are also central to this conversation. And I kind of wanted to have that kind of 360 conversation with someone that could kind of catch me up and, and catch our listeners up on on the innovations and developments um, taking place in, in the space. And I know that's a really big conversation. So I know you and I are probably just going to be able to bite off a few pieces of, of that today. Um, but I thought a good, a good uh, place for us to start was talking about um, what's what's driving uh, what's driving the change in the sector in in terms of you know consumer behavior and and their desire for change? All of the changes in the energy sector right now, um, and this is a time of great change, are being driven by cultural and and consumer and societal changes. That uh, if you go back, you know, two generations ago. Um, coal was the predominant uh, form of, um, of electricity generation, and then 
um, in refined petroleum, of course, crude oil uh, sourced around the world and, uh, and natural gas as well. And um, there have been huge cultural changes in North America to reduce the carbon emissions uh, involved in the energy sector. And so this this trend has all been driven by, really by the consumer, by the end, what we call the demand. <laughs> um, and they're, they're, they've generated demand for uh, low-emitting or non, um, non-emitting sources of energy production. And uh, so that has caused great disruption from the standpoint of generating that kind of a power. Um, you have to change all of the infrastructure, and that doesn't happen overnight. It's a very long process. And, of, of course, the public is impatient. Um, we want to flick the switch on our, on our light and have the light go on, um, and it should be that quick. But all of the generating assets for, um, for natural gas and, and various forms of electricity and refined petroleum um, it's a much longer time frame in order to shift production from, as an example, a, a coal fire plant in Baldoon to a refurbished um, hydroelectric dam like Mactaquac. So, um, so, so that's where it's all starting from. It's all starting from uh, consumer and public pressure. Right. And I know you, you know, you have a, a long view in this and, and you have, a, you know, it, you understand the complexities of this just in terms of, you know, the, the, the shift the, the conversation, you know, for, for a long time was, was oil and, and, uh, you know, in energy East occupied a big part of the public debate and, and that process to, you know, to try and get that pipeline built was a long one. Um, and now, you know, you're starting to see, uh, shifts happening where, you know, oil is still a central part of obviously the, of the, the maritime economy, uh, both in terms of, you know, the, gas we put in our cars and the oil we put in our cars to to the export opportunities uh, to the US and the economic um, and the economic uh, activity that that generates how how recent is this shift that's happening though with you in terms of how you understand demand and, and consumer behavior has this been something that's been coming or is it is it quite recent Sure. We've been looking at this probably for uh, six or seven years, actually, as the um, the interest in reducing carbon emission, emissions and the talk of carbon pricing and carbon taxes and, uh, and cap and trade. That was all being talked about for, for four or five years until eventually... Um, you know there were uh, there were policies and and uh, and legislation actually created, and so we're at that point now. Um, there's the three main areas of energy here in in the Maritimes. There'd be the refined petroleum that comes from crude oil, and we get things we get products such as propane and fuel oil and gasoline and diesel. And, and again, people start taking that for granted that, oh, um, refined petroleum, that's gasoline. And if I switch to an electric car, well, that's all fine. And they forget about their propane barbecue and that they want propane. And they forget that all these electric cars will be driving on asphalt roads. And asphalt, of course, is a refined petroleum. So, so just in that sector alone, it's complex. If you want to take out gasoline, well, how do you still get your propane and your asphalt? And and then we start thinking about, yes, we all want to fly again when when it's safe to do so. And we need those aviation fuels. And the aviation fuels, of course, are refined petroleum. So, so that's sort of a web there of how do we decarbonize the process and the and the combustion of the refined petroleum. The second sector would be the electricity sector. Um, and not only do we have to now shift the generation of the electricity, um, more nuclear, because nuclear is non-emitting, uh, more hydro, um, again, non-emitting, and more wind and more solar. But we have to then um, grapple with, well, what do we do with these generating assets that we still have and are productive and they work? Um, so how do we transition away from those without breaking the bank? And then how do we connect it all? Um, uh, recently, we heard about the Atlantic Loop um, in the speech from the throne. And, and that basically is a project looking at expanding the transmission lines between Quebec, New Brunswick, uh, and Nova Scotia, and, and parts of Newfoundland and Labrador so that we can better connect 
um, from a capacity standpoint, more electricity throughout this region. Uh, and again, that's um, uh, it, it looks very promising, and that's something that the federal government had to step in on because to try and finance all these additional transmission lines will be extremely expensive and ratepayers of course don't want to pay for that so so we get we're now at this point where there's this um, give and take between the customers demanding more renewable and non-emitting energy and then now having to start thinking about paying for the cost of delivering non-emitting um, energy and and then we bring in natural gas to that um, to, into that picture as well, and and we start asking, well, where is our natural gas going to come from, at what cost, and how are we going to get it there, and should natural gas consumption be growing, or are there things that we can add to natural gas to green it up, such as blue natural gas and and green natural gas? So these are the kinds of things that we are transitioning in right now that make it very exciting to see how this will all play out in the next 10 and 20 years. Um, As we mentioned, these are not things that happen overnight. Um, New discoveries and new technologies take about 10 years to be developed and permitted. And um, that's why we need to be working on them now so that in 2030 and then 2040 and then 2050, they're actually um, perfected, commercialized, the infrastructure is built and and everything is connected. You must, uh, with that kind of long range planning, you must have have to have real confidence that the demand and consumer trends that are taking shape are are long-term ones eh, in terms of what consumers are looking for? Well, that's a really good point because um, prior to this year, (laughs) um, the electricity market, as an example, um, was what we call Twin Peaks. So in the morning, between 6.30 and 9 o'clock in the morning, there's a huge demand for electricity as people are waking up, showering, getting their kids ready for school, getting ready for work, and off you go. Um, And then a real... Uh, valley, um, a real lack of demand for electricity during the the morning and the afternoon. And then it peaks again in the evening between 4.30 and 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Um, Again, a big demand on the um, electricity system for people that are coming home, cooking dinner, bathing, doing laundry and things like that. Um, And so that was our pattern um, for the last few decades, quite frankly, was these Twin Peaks early in the morning. And, and just as an aside, um, that is before the sun shines and before the wind starts blowing. So it's a very high, intense period in the morning of use, uh, not so much in the, in the mid-morning and afternoon when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. <laughs> and then a big demand in the evenings, in particular in the winter, when again, the sun is not shining <laughs> And the wind is not blowing. So that was a that was a big challenge for the electricity producers to try and match the demand at a time when it doesn't really sync with renewable energy and, and it's double peaked. So now during 2020, we noticed a big disruption with respect to that, uh, that pattern. With COVID-19, people stopped getting up to go to work in the morning and they were just staying at home to work. Um, children um, at the daycare level and uh, at the school level weren't getting up to go. And so it really flattened out those two peaks. Um, people were at home more. And so demand um, demand in general went down significantly and it no longer peaked in the morning and peaked in the afternoon, but was much flatter. Um, so if that continues... Um, that will change a lot of the plans that we would have had a year ago. Um, we will have to see over the next year during 2021 whether people continue to work from home, whether we still have distance learning for university and um, uh, elementary and secondary and high school level, um, and uh, and see if there's less commuting going on and less um, uh, office space um, changing our, our demand pattern. So, so that one we will be watching very closely um, because it really does have a, a, a strong impact on how, we, how and when we produce uh, electricity for that, um, for that market. 
and and with the introducing re- renewables like solar and wind it, it it does some of that change um would that would that affect the the priority placed right now on on battery storage capacity and figuring out ways to to store that solar and wind power for the the, the times when the sun's not shining and the the wind's not blowing like is that kind of what you're talking about yeah, there's some. Um, uh, there's a, a number of different approaches to it. Uh, one is absolutely um, battery storage is um, is uh, developing uh, very nicely. If you if you follow the development of wind, which was first, um, you know, it was, it was rather expensive, and it took them uh, quite a few years to um, to optimize the right size um, uh, of turbines and the locations and the force of the wind. You want nice, steady wind as opposed to erratic wind. Um, and that's pretty well perfected now. And the cost of that has dropped. Um, if you were looking at a graph, it would be, you know, from high to, to very low and it, and it went quite rapidly. And now solar is, is doing the same thing where the, the, um, the solar panels, the cost of those are, are dropping um, and following that same pattern. And then the next one would be the battery storage. And likewise, battery storage is becoming more and more affordable, less and less costly. And so those trends are, are very nice. Um, from the standpoint of, of being affordable going forward and being competitive with, uh, with traditional forms of, uh, of electricity. And again, we're, we're strictly talking about electricity generation from that standpoint. But there's other things that are being looked at, um, such as uh, some of the people may have heard of uh, small modular reactors. And this will be the next generation of nuclear power. And New Brunswick has a great opportunity and is perfectly positioned to do the research and development involved with creating and designing the next generation of of nuclear technology, not just for us here in New Brunswick and Canada, but quite frankly, for the world. Um, It's sort of a perfect uh, alignment of um, University of New Brunswick and New Brunswick Community College, uh, from that standpoint, proponents that are interested from outside of, uh, of this region locating here to actually do that development to the provincial and federal governments being aligned with this going forward um, and the utility and be power. And of course, we have an existing um, nuclear power plant, plant uh, Point La Pro, which is an ideal location for this um, uh, commercialization to take place. So that is not your, um, what, what I call your grandfather's Buick. Um, this is new, completely different design with respect to nuclear power. And, uh, the, the can do design has worked very, very well and will serve us very, very well into the future. Um, but new generation and new builds will be, um, much more, um, smaller, compact and modular so that you could stack them, um, one by one by one, so that you can go from 100 megawatts to 300 to even up to 1,000 megawatts, which is which is significant. Uh, that would that would be more than the little pro plant, as an example. So, um, and then the other one that's that's on the horizon, which is still a few years out, is is looking at the piece that hydrogen plays in the future of the energy sector. And and if you thought of sort of a spectrum of uh, crude oil and refined petroleum at, at one end, and then electricity generation in the middle, and the natural gas at the other end. Um, hydrogen has a place to play um, right along that entire spectrum. Um, it has implications for the refining of of petroleum um, as an additive or component to uh, to gasoline and diesel and and other fuels. It also has a role to play in the electricity sector from the generation of electricity and actually as an output of, uh, of um, as an example, um, renewable wind and using and creating hydrogen during the off-peak hours. And then in the natural gas side, uh, again, looking at, um, at a component of natural gas, adding it to natural gas, and at some point perhaps even replacing it as natural gas. And the technology development that's going on around the world with respect to fuel cell technology um, is really gearing up similar to, similar along the same patterns as electric vehicles. Um, Again, a lot of the car manufacturer, automotive manufacturers were looking at internal combustion engines, which we're all familiar with, to um, hybrids and then to full electric vehicles. 
and 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 there's still um, a lot of work being done now on fuel cell technology, which is which is hydrogen, and it'll be interesting to see how fast the automobile manufacturers jump from combustion to electric to to uh, fuel cell. So hydrogen um, and the potential in the Maritimes for hydrogen has a lot of applications right across the energy spectrum. So those are things that we're looking at that may um, help to address some of this disruption that's going on and may help to answer um, the call to reduce the emissions going forward in the energy sector and the use of energy. Right, and some some of these are you know, some of these are short term windows. Some are medium term. Some are long longer term. Um, which ones do you see as kind of the the, the immediate opportunities that sit out there um, that 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 interest you and excite you? Uh, well, certainly the the small modular reactor is very timely um, right now. As as I mentioned, we have a, a very very nice alignment of political, utility, investment, and technology all um, coming together at the same time. So um, that window of opportunity is open right now. And if we can seize that window of opportunity and go forward with SMR in the very near term, um, you know, literally by the end of 2020, then that looks very, very promising going forward. Um, if we lose that window of opportunity, then Quite frankly, all bets are off, um, and that that development will go somewhere else in Canada or somewhere else like the United States, or continue being developed in in other parts of the world, which which is already going on. Um, and then hydrogen is definitely longer term, um, but there's also you know increased um, uh, wind generation, and and here in New Brunswick we had one that came online uh, this week with Natural Forces and uh, and the Tabik First Nation. Um, so that was tremendous to see that going forward. And I would think that that will continue to see these um, uh, private partnerships uh, going forward with respect to renewable energy, um, renewable natural gas, and, and some other sort of project by project basis looking at, at um, generating electricity in particular. And, and there's a few others that are, that are a little bit premature and they may come up in, uh, in 2021. We're, we're um, we're looking at those, and they show great potential as well. The um, curious to know. I, I wanted to pause you on the on the um, Natural Forces uh, Tobique project because that also has a you know an, an, a new ownership structure in terms of of how it, the the industry is also evolving. Can you talk to us a little bit about that project? Um, well, not necessarily spe- specifically about that project, but generally the. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the business model there, and, and it, that'll be a nice segue into business models and how they have to change. Um, Natural Forces is, uh, is based out of um, Nova Scotia, based out of Halifax, and they have projects across Canada and in the United States. Um, and the, the key thing there is to look at generating um, renewable energy. So it could be a solar, uh, solar garden or a solar farm. It could be a wind farm and partnering with local communities. So this one in, in Penobscot that involves the Tabik First Nation and Natural Forces. Uh, Tabik has a 51% ownership and Natural Forces has 49%. And um, so the dividends and the returns go back and, and they're basically split between 51, uh, 49. With the birch, proposed virtual wind farm uh, that will go um, up in uh, the Colson Cove area of New Brunswick, um, uh, again, that is a natural forces project um, in partnership with uh, St. John Energy. Um, and again, there will be a community ownership opportunity for that as well. Uh, coming up in 2021, um, First Nations, uh, individuals, organizations, community groups will all have the opportunity of um part- uh, of participating in an equity position in that. So, um, so the difference in the model is the opportunity for people to sort of put their money where their mouth is. And if they do support renewable energy, it gives them an opportunity to, uh, to participate in the generation and, and the dividends back to them as an investment uh, into, um, into renewable energy. Uh, if we look at um, uh, business models going forward, and, th- and that is a new one where um, the generation of 
electricity has um, typically been by one big central um, generator. Now it will be what we call distributed generation. So there'll be multiple different groups producing the um, electricity around the province or around the region. And then it becomes a little bit more complex for the utilities to then manage all of that um, generation that's going on. So it, it adds uh, another level of complexity for, in this case, um, MB Power. And if you look at IBM, uh, there was a story in the news today that IBM, which is 109 years old, is now rejigging and reaching and changing up its business plan. And it's looking at focusing on cloud computing. Uh, MB Power has over a hundred year business model. And that likewise is going to have to change. The business model for St. John Energy has to change and um, oil companies, you know, big petroleum companies um, all have to rethink how they have done business in the past and how they're going to satisfy demand, produce their, um, their uh, particular service offerings and get it to, i.e. transmit or distribute it, to their customers, because this is all changing during this decade, and they are all going to have to rethink how they have done business in the past and how they're going to do it in the future. Right, and with the, with a couple of these the the projects that you'd mentioned, the the virtual project and and the Tobique project, they're you know both uh, natural forces is involved in 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 both of those, but also with the, you know the intriguing part of that, which you you know you've touched on as well, is we're used to, you know, the, the large, the large energy producer, um, proposing the project, the, the community kind of pays attention and they either support it or they don't, but there's a bit of a, there's a bit of detachment there, or uh, I want to say a power imbalance, but it's like you have the, the, the power generator and provider, and then you have the consumer. It, it seems to me in these two projects, you have, um, them addre- addressing indigenous involvement uh, in in the process, not just as people voicing an opinion, but people involved as owners. And, and then you have the, the virtual project that still needs to take place, uh, take shape, but has that could also have that kind of like uh, community ownership model. It's 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 a very different way of thinking about not just power generation, but also the economic development opportunity. Eh? That's right. If you look at Liberty Utilities, which is was uh, formerly Enbridge Gas New Brunswick. Uh, Liberty is looking beyond natural gas. Um, they're certainly expanding their natural gas access. Uh, most recently, they've uh, they've applied to expand the line to the Havelock area, and which would give them a potential to add uh, industrial as well as uh, residential customers. But they're looking at other opportunities and looking at partnerships with other companies across the uh, across the Maritimes, across the region. Um, and so they're taking the opportunity as well to sort of redefine where are they going in the future. And, um, uh, and other companies would be well advised to, to do the same. Uh, on, on, the, um, on the natural gas uh, piece, um, you know, as a segue, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, you know, because obviously that's been, you know, very, very uh, controversial sector and, and debate in New Brunswick. And I'm, I'm curious to know what, what role you think that plays in the future in terms of whether or not we ultimately will, you know, develop our natural gas reserves if, you know, if they're there in abundance and uh, how that will influence how that industry takes shape. Um, it's certainly one that we have followed very, very closely over the last decade. Um, and, uh, and, and it, it, and we will be still following it. Um, but the, the, the picture has sort of changed. Traditionally, um, the source for natural gas was offshore Nova Scotia, and, and it was, quite frankly, for 20 years. Um, and then that, um, and then that ended in um, in December 2019, or yeah, 2019. So the market has adjusted to that supply, rather than coming from Nova Scotia and all the economic benefits. <laughs> that went with that, and they were in the billions of dollars to the Nova Scotia government, which helped pay for, um, you know, public services. Uh, That all comes now from either Western Canada or the United States. So there has been a complete 100% change in the supply of natural gas to this region over the last year. So rather than it being a local supply, it now comes um, absolutely from away. 
Um, and so what we would look at going forward is where will our natural gas continue to come from and at what cost? Uh, the downside of not having a local supply of natural gas is that we now have the most expensive natural gas in North America. And that does not paint a really good picture from an economic development standpoint because industrial enterprises and manufacturers and hospitals and schools, uh, government buildings all rely on natural gas. Um, so so that's a, a, a big thing there. The second is um, is the demand side, which is how much will we need going forward and um, and where will that natural gas be used? So, and, and what kind of new um, demand will arise over the next decade? So, so those things we're looking at. From an economic development standpoint, there's no question that the largest economic multiplier with respect to a dollar in and a dollar out is, is the, um, you know, the, the energy sector. Uh, this is a, a very high functioning part of, um, uh, of the economy. And if, if you look at Alberta, um, that, that would be a, a very good example of, um, you know, an entire economy that depends on, on the energy sector. So from a natural gas standpoint, um, the first step would be to identify onshore how much, if any, natural gas exists that could be brought to the service and connect to the surface and connected with um, with existing pipelines? Uh, we have an, an, a unique situation in the Maritimes in that we have an underutilized natural gas pipeline. It's probably the only one in North America. Um, so there is certainly additional capacity for um, distributing more natural gas than we currently do. Um, the economic benefits of being able to identify that there are uh, natural gas reserves that could be commercially developed um, are in the billions of dollars uh, in the long term. Um, so, so it'll be interesting to see if um, if that goes ahead. I'm not going to um, to suggest one way or the other. Uh, we do our analysis. <laughs> We're not for or against. Um, but it, uh, there certainly is an opportunity there. It will be interesting to see if that opportunity gets investigated and, uh, and if it does prove positive, whether it actually, um, does take place. Cause certainly there will always be a need for natural gas. Uh, there will always be a use for it. And it'll be interesting to see if, um, that natural gas will continue to come from outside this region and, and hence the economic benefits would be realized outside this region or whether we choose to go with a more energy secure and energy diversity um, uh, plan, which would show um, the uh, the resource developed here. Right. And we, we certainly began our conversation talking about uh, a lot of what's what's driving change right now is is that you know, consumer groundswell, right? That feeling of, you know, we, we want to see these kinds of, you know, low carbon initiatives. We want to see these kinds of things become a more prominent place of electricity, electricity generation, um, how we fuel our cars, how we power our cars. It, on, on that note, like what's your sense of where New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are in terms of how they feel about local natural gas development? Um. It's something that is being watched very closely. Um, I, I would be talking to people, um, users of natural gas, producers of natural gas, policy uh, decision writer or um, policy writers, um, and and people in the whole the whole spectrum. And and it's certainly being watched very closely um, in Nova Scotia. Um, for twenty years, they benefited from um, offshore natural gas, and that has now that has now ended. So there is a, a strong desire to replace that revenue that the province enjoyed from natural gas development and to see how, uh, through the energy sector, they could, they could, um, you know, supplement their revenue of the province, um, through energy development. And in New Brunswick, um, same thing, there's a big economic, uh, reason to pursue natural gas. Um, but again, it's at this point, really, it's more of a political decision than it is um, an energy sector decision that there is certainly um, interest from from the energy companies in determining whether there is a viable supply of natural gas and whether that can be commercially competitive. Um, but the um, political question has to be answered first. 
Right. And then I guess then on the political level, they're making similar calculations, right? You have, you have companies that try to read their consumers and, and you have politicians that try to read their voters. That's right. That's right. So I say that's, and that's where it stands right now, but there certainly is interest in, uh, you know, in that going forward. Um, but it's, uh, but it's, it's not in, in their hands right now. I, I think one of the biggest challenges in the energy sector is simplifying very, very complex topic that, um, everything is intermingled and intertwined. And if you tweak one side, well, it has impacts on the other. And, um, at the Atlantica center for energy, we try and anticipate what are those impacts and are they positive or are they negative? And, and if you move something or move a chess piece at one end, um, what are the implications and the ramifications going to be? And, and have you thought about those? And we spend a lot of time uh, sort of following the dominoes and, um, and looking at what is the outcome going to be. Um, if you look at the emissions reductions, um, uh, people are focusing on carbon dioxide. And, and a lot of people will talk about GHGs, which are greenhouse gas emissions, without really knowing what is a greenhouse gas. <laughs> um, and that the, the one that... that uh, that politicians have been focusing on is, is CO2, which is carbon dioxide. And every single person on the planet exhales carbon dioxide. Um, and, and I guess if we all stopped doing that, <laughs> there would be ramifications, but certainly our GHGs would go down. Um, so it, it's not really what we historically have thought of as pollution. It's carbon dioxide. It's, it's clear, it's odorless, um, it's tasteless. It's just what we exhale every day, what all the animals on the planet exhale. Um, and it's also what all the trees inhale. So, so it's again, to try and get, um, people to understand that it, we're not talking about particulate. We're not talking about smoke. We're talking about carbon dioxide, which is what we all exhale every minute. Um, and so that's one thing, but the next one, um, you know, is, is, uh, nitrous oxide, which is nitrogen. And that will be the next one that will come down the pike when we talk about forecasting what's next. Um, back, if you go back a few years, um, we talked about acid rain and, uh, and we were able to, um, you know, to solve that global challenge. Then it was um, after acid rain, it was CFCs, and we were able to, um, to work on that and, and solve that issue. And then it was the hole in the atmosphere and uh, the hole in the ozone, and we were able to satisfy that. Um, now it's the carbon dioxide emissions and uh, looking at trying to either sequester or reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that's emitted. Well, the next one coming down the, the, the road is nitrous oxide, and that is basically nitrogen and the gas that nitrogen gives off. And that is 300 times of, uh, has a greater impact than carbon dioxide. So today we are focusing on carbon dioxide, CO2, but in the future, we're going to start shifting towards nitrous oxide. And that nitrogen is a very important component in fertilizer. And the, the biggest, uh, source of nitrous oxide that, um, is, is the agricultural sector. And so, um, eventually society is going to shift from the energy sector and start looking at the agriculture sector as to how to reduce, um, the use of nitrogen or how to better manage the use of nitrogen as a fertilizer. So, um, the level of intensity will change because carbon dioxide while, uh, while having a negative impact is 300 times less impactful than nitrous oxide. So and what are so the negative impacts of nitrous oxide? Um, again, it's just another, um, uh, another emission that, um, that leads to a warming of the, uh, of the climate. It's and, interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Call no, me. I was just going to say, so, so these are some of the complexities that, that have befallen the energy sector to try and point out um, to, uh, to lay people, to, to neighbors, to, um, you know, colleagues that, um, while we're focusing on this today and this is driving change, we also have to keep our eye on what's going to be driving change tomorrow. 
it, it makes me think of uh, an analogy that you um, we had talked about, uh, you know, before uh, turning on the mic for the podcast, and you, you had, you know, identified one of the biggest challenges being in in being able to simplify, you know, conversations uh, so that we can you know, can have these street level conversations about about the changes and the complexities around the uh, the energy sector, and I mean, you you had compared it to a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> That's right. It is. It's, it is, um, everything is intertwined. It is not as simple as, well, just shut down Baldoon and then we won't be burning coal and turn on a few more windmills. Um, if it was that easy, I, I swear to you, we would have done it 10 years ago. Um, but it's much more complex and, um, we wish it was that simple. <laughs> um, but it is very complex and, and of course, there's this cost implication that as we do change from, um, uh, from different sources of, um, of energy to newer sources, well, that does run up the cost. And so then the ratepayers complain that their, you know, the, the cost of electricity goes from, uh, you know, 11 cents to 12 cents to 13 cents. Um, and, and yet here in New Brunswick, we also have a responsibility to communicate that New Brunswick actually has the cheapest electricity rate in the Atlantic provinces. Um, and, and yet we think it's expensive. And so we also try and shift that focus from not the rate of the power per kilowatt, um, such as, you know, 12 or 12 cents and, and a little bit more than 12 cents, but the whole bill. And, and that's where energy efficiency comes in. And there are still some great opportunities in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick to be more energy efficient, use energy more wisely. And that is hands down, best bang for the buck is to not use the energy in the first place. Right. Is around, is around conservation. Absolutely. Always. Doesn't matter what you look at, whether it's, uh, you know, nuclear energy, hydrogen, um, uh, wind, solar, um, hydro, um, the best dollar invested is the one you just didn't spend by turning out your light or turning down your heat or, um, you know, uh, doing things that, you know, and insulating and um, just not using that electricity in the first place. Right. And, and it, you know, and it takes that conversation because we do tend to take these conversations to, you know, what are, what are the things that the, the, you know, the big industrial, the big sector players can do to fix this. And, and it brings it down to that citizen level, right. And, and makes the conversation all about us as well. That's right. If you look uh, at graphs of which, you know, I have, I have dozens and dozens and dozens of graphs, um, but uh, to date, um, you know, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, both, um, both provinces have done, um, you know, phenomenal job at reducing the, um, their emissions. We have already, here we are in, in uh, 2020, we have already met our 2030 emission reduction targets if you were to, um, you know, equalize them province by province. So uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and the Yukon Territory um, are, are right on track. We have done an amazing job. And again, that's sort of something that we, that, um, that should be broadcast more than it is. Um, and that has been for the most part been borne by, um, the, the large emitters such as, um, you know, MB power, uh, Irving oil and Nova Scotia power and huge changes that have been made over the last 10 and 15 years by them to get the next gains it's coming down to the transportation sector and quite frankly, individual behavior. So where society has been demanding um, reduced emissions, now it's time for them to stand up and change their own personal behaviors. And, uh, and we saw some of this happen with, um, in 2020 during COVID-19 where people stopped driving to work <laughs> mm. um, and, uh, and use um, electricity um, throughout the day rather than just in the morning and just in the evening. And so as individuals start taking responsibility for their own, um, uh, you know, energy consumption and reducing it, um, that helps to play, um, a part in how, um, the producers of, of energy then respond to that. And it's one of the unknowns about, about COVID. And I'm not sure if you have a sense yourself of how, how our things are going to play out, but, It'll be interesting to see which which of our patterns that we've shifted are the temporary ones, and which are the ones that 
that have a lasting effect? Uh, yeah, that's that. That will be a, an interesting um, again cultural discussion um, with respect to um, uh, yeah people that 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 monitor uh, cultural shifts. Um, and, and it will be interesting. It, it will. Um, certainly some of the things I think that are permanent, uh, and again, this is outside my realm of expertise. We're not talking about energy now. Um, you look at back in January, um, uh, again, in our organization, we would have had uh, face-to-face meetings. Um, and in February, face-to-face meetings. And then all of a sudden in March and April, we were forced to adopt technology and now, um, yeah, it's, it has come on seamlessly. It's less expensive. It works great. Um, people are available because they're not traveling. And so these virtual meetings have worked out amazingly well. And I really don't see um, a huge um, uh, push to go back to <laughs> um, traveling for meetings and whatnot. So I think some of those things will, will remain uh, and I think some people have become extremely comfortable working from home and not commuting to and from work and working in uh, office, tr- traditional um, office buildings. So some of that, um, we'll see more of a balance of work from home and um, remote working versus uh, being in, in office towers. So I think, I think there'll be an interesting mix going forward where it would have been all one way in the future. It'll be... Um, uh, um, a combination. Right. And then, and then we'll figure out where the energy impacts are on all that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to close. I know we've touched uh, a little bit about this on this throughout, but I'd like to close by just asking you about where you, I mean, we've had, we've had, we we're always having these big project discussions, uh, in, in this region and, and a lot of them around energy and, you know, the job, creation uh, possibilities and the wealth creation possibilities. What are the, 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 the big ones that get you, that get you excited about their, their ability to help transform the economy in terms of job creation and wealth creation? I think the, um, uh, in the near term, the small modular reactor um, is, is one that gets me very excited in the near term. Um, because it's not just about the energy sector. There's an opportunity here for companies all across New Brunswick uh, and quite frankly, even in Nova Scotia that could enter a new um, sector that they would not have been able to have supplied to the nuclear sector before. And there's an opportunity here for 20 or 30% of the, um, uh, the components for these small modular reactors could actually be manufactured here in New Brunswick or, or Nova Scotia, but but predominantly companies that already exist here, small businesses around the province um, that already exist here that are making these kind of components that could now serve the nuclear sector, which in before was um, pretty well um, solely existing in, in the Ontario market. And it, it opens up an entirely new sector for existing businesses, as well as a potential for attracting some of the traditional nuclear suppliers to New Brunswick um, to operate here and to employ people here and provide um, components and parts for uh, for these small modular reactors. For, for the benefit of, of those listening, um, we're not talking about just um, developing a... Um, uh, the next generation of, of uh, nuclear energy, which which is exciting in and of itself, with the you know with the universities and the PhDs and the nuclear scientists, it's also about developing the first prototype, which is exciting. But then it's about taking that prototype and selling it to the rest of the world. So we would actually become a factory operation here in New Brunswick for building, designing these, building them, and then shipping them. Um, all around the world. So this is an entirely new sector of the economy. So that it, it is exciting. What about uh, wind, wind energy? Do you see a, a lot of growth there? Um, yeah, absolutely. There is a, there's a still potential for, uh, for wind farms in this region. Um, and as these markets open up and as demand changes, um, really right now, um, Nova Scotia and New, and New Brunswick are pretty balanced with respect to their ability to generate enough electricity. Um, what happens, though, is that as some of these um, uh, generating assets um, 
reach end of life, as we call it, that um, as they get replaced, we will be looking at more wind, more solar, um, because they are probably the least um, impactful. If you, if you tried to build a new hydroelectric dam, as an example, from scratch, um, that would take decades to try and identify a site and get environmental permitting. Um, it would be very invasive. Whereas uh, wind farms, you can put them up in, um, in all kinds of different communities around, uh, around the Maritimes. And certainly there's an opportunity there for a lot of mun- municipalities such as uh, Edmonston, Perth Andover, St. John, Berwick, Nova Scotia, Anaganish, Mahome Bay. They all have um, municipal entities that are, uh, that are getting into, if they have not already, um, generating um, their own electricity and, and using it as a source of revenue, not just a source of electricity. I, I probably should close because I by asking you about because um, of course we're sitting on 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 the Bay of Fundy. There was a project discussed, you know, long ago that 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 was shelved around potentially using tidal to you know to power you know a potential second refinery. Where where does where does um, where does tidal sit in in this conversation? Uh, tidal is a is a very big initiative of the Nova Scotia government, uh, looking at harnessing the um, the ocean power of the Bay of Fundy. Um, there is uh, an organization called FORCE, um, Fundy Ocean Research uh, Center. Um, and um, it has, I think there's to date six different proponents that are testing different arrays of harnessing ocean energy. Um, and uh, so that is still in the development stage. So, uh, and that's probably a good analogy that uh, looking at tidal energy, um, there are still all kinds of different um, different engineered ways of trying to harness that and, and make it commercially viable. And, th- and that's sort of where uh, small modular reactors are, that they are looking at perfecting um, the, uh, the methodology for coming up with the ideal um, next generation advanced uh, small modular reactors. Um, the, the tidal energy certainly has potential without question. Um, the Bay of Fundy is an excellent um, place and has ter- tremendous infrastructure now for doing that testing and looking at all the different sensing devices and deployment. And, and, and that is another um, example of Nova Scotia government um, sort of owning that space and using it as an economic development opportunity for looking at not just the production of the electricity, but also, as I say, the, the sensing, remote communications, deployment, and working um, in, uh, in harsh marine environments. So um, that, uh, that's coming. It's in a development stage. And uh, you know, one of the proponents did come very close, and they were, I think, one of the first, matter of fact, the first in the world to actually connect to the grid and produce uh, tidal energy, ocean energy, and, uh, and have it available to Nova Scotia Power. Um, so it's, I think it's, uh, it's a, certainly a, a promising area. Well, thanks very much, uh, Colleen. I'm, I'm curious, um, before I let you go, do you have, uh, we're heading into a Thanksgiving weekend. Do you have any uh, hikes or bikes planned? I do. <laughs> I do, actually. Uh, there is, uh, yeah, there's, there's actually uh, a couple that, uh, that, that my husband and I will be doing very excited about it. We looked at the weather and we'll, we'll play the weather and uh, um, looking at uh, enjoying this fall air for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Colleen. I really appreciate talking to you. My pleasure entirely. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office, and that was my conversation with Colleen Dautremont. And thank you very much, Colleen, for the great chat. Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can subscribe to Home Office on your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, just uh, whatever your favorite platform is, please go subscribe. And if you're new to uh, the podcast, you can listen to past episodes there. I hope you all have a great weekend. Talk to you next week.